Good morning. Welcome once again to Christ Community Presbyterian Church. Glad to be here bringing God's Word to you. We are coming to the close. We have uh, this sermon, one more in our study in Genesis before we move on uh, to the New Testament. But uh, we today are going to be looking um, at Babel and the generations that follow Noah. We've looked at Noah. We've looked at his sons. We looked at how... uh, Shem faithfully covered his father's shame. Um, and now we're going to pick up in the generations of Noah following Noah. So we're going to look at his sons and, and all the, the people that come after that and the account of the Tower of Babel. And so we have another genealogical record. Um, and uh, uh, it takes a little bit of work to read through it, but we're going to do that. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 10, verses 1 to chapter 11. Verses 9, so if you would turn with me in your Bibles or to your bulletins, you can follow along. And I'll do my best. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer... Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Targarmah, the sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kitten, and Dodanim. From these the coastland people spread to their lands, each wife his own language, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ra'amah, and Sabteka, the sons of Ra'amah, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush, father Nimrod, he was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelna, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and resin between Nineveh and Kalad, that is, the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim and Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kalushim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtarim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, and the Sinites, the Averdites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites, afterward the clans of the Canaanites, dispersed. And their territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their language, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of uh, all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born, the sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachashad, Lud, and Aram, the sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash, Arpachashad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons, the name of one was Peleg, for in, the days, the earth, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelah, Hazmer, Hazmerabeth, Jera, 
Hadaram, Uzo, Dikla, Obol, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar in the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had bricks for, for, bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make the, a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language. Let us go down there and confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of the, all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the, all the face of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your word. Sometimes we wonder what is there for us in these long lists of names, but we know that it is for our good that you have have it that we might be trained in righteousness, that we might know you and love you. Lord, help us to understand your word this morning, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, when I worked, the last church I was at, City Reformed, there was a, a, an administrator, a woman, uh, who worked in the office with me. And one day, this woman, Sarah, she brought into the office this really intriguing document. Uh, it was a research paper that one of her relatives had done, and this research paper was her family's ancestry. Now, this, I think, was at the very beginning of Ancestry.com, and so I think that's how we got discussing it and why she brought in this pre-Ancestry.com paper. But in this Ancestry, it was really intriguing, um, she can trace her relatives all the way back to the Mayflower. Um, not only that, but her great, 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 whatever grandfather was William Bradford. I thought that, wow, this is remarkable. This, like, here we have a pilgrim uh, in my midst. Now, I, and I was astounded, but uh, she said, don't be. Uh, William Bradford had a lot of children and a lot, a lot of grandchildren. And so there are many people who are in America who are related to William Bradford. Um, and... Uh, many in the U.S. here, anyway. So, as I was preparing our sermon, I was this sermon for today, I was thinking about this commonality of ancestry. You know, of course, we can trace our roots all the way back to Noah and to Adam, um, uh, even though we might not be able to trace our roots directly to the Mayflower. Uh, there's a commonality as humans that we all share together. And as I was thinking about this, 
And I was reading this text. I thought, how, how disturbing that this text has been used in ways that destroy that common humanity. And maybe some of you don't realize this. And so I'll be introducing something just, just briefly here at the front end uh, that might disturb you. But this passage, along with the one we read last week, regarding Noah's, um, the curse of, of Canaan and um, Ham, when he chose to look on God's shame, or God's shame, on Noah's shame, not God's, um, uh, that, that curse, of course, I'll read it again, just so we can remind ourselves, uh, of a cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. Um, so cursed is Canaan, the son of Ham, that he would be a servant of servants to his brothers. This has been used um, terribly uh, to justify slavery here in America. Um, I really appreciated John Piper's book, Bloodlines, which I recommend to you. It's a book that examines issues of race and racism from his own personal perspective, his own growing up. Um, but in the very end of this book, and it's a, it's a good book. It's not, it's not a hard read. I recommend it to you. Uh, he has some appendix, and he addresses this curse of Ham. It's not the curse of Ham. It's the curse of Canaan, Ham's son. And some of you might, why did he curse Canaan? Well, um, that's in God's divine providence. But uh, uh, we know later on that the Canaanites are wicked and evil people that the God, whom God judges. Um, but he makes it clear that this is not an application to the people and descendants that may have spread out across Africa and all those who descended from them. And I, I want to be absolutely clear on this. There is no justifying segregation or enslavement or subjugation from this text. Be absolutely clear on this point. Um, we have a common humanity and ancestry. We are all image bearers mm -hmm. of God. And even if we think of, well, he cursed the Canaanites, he did. But remember, the Canaanites themselves sinned against God and rebelled. And you'll also remember that individually, some Canaanites repent and trust in the Lord. We have Rahab. And identify themselves with the people of God. We ought not to take this as an opportunity to perpetuate uh, false myths. And I just start at the beginning. Um, yes, the peoples of the earth are spread out across the globe. They're divided by language into tribes and nations. But this is honestly a result of the, tr the fall of, of pride of man. It's God's discipline. And we're going to kind of explore that this morning. And ironically, in Scripture, rather than being a thing to perpetuate all these divisions, what is God doing? He says to Abraham, right? Abraham is the seed of Shem. He is the promised one. He is chosen by God apart from all the other people of the earth. Abraham is chosen. But what does he tell, say to Abraham? He says to Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. But he doesn't stop there. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. But all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through you. And what does that look like? That looks like Jesus coming. 
That looks like Jesus coming at Pentecost, right? And taking that confusion of language and making the gospel plain and clear and bringing an entire people to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation on this earth. And that, friends, is this text. Not the division. The division is part, partly the, the, the effects of the fall, but, but God's work of redemption and bringing all the nations to himself. Right? So we are united. But this genealogical record and account of Babel not only reminds us of our common ancestry, it reminds us of our common problem, our desire to make a name for ourselves. This is at the heart of this story of Babel, to set up monuments to our independence to God, from God. Uh, we don't think that we need God. We think that we can be like God, that we you can usurp him. A simple thing this is, pride, arrogance, hubris. Just as we are all descendants of Adam, have that common humanity, so too are we all like Adam in our sin. We are fallen in him. Nevertheless, not only does this text sort of expose that pride of man, but it also reminds us that despite our pride, despite our attempts to slough God off, to, to, to take him out of our life, Despite the judgment that we deserve, despite the judgment that the people in this time frame received by being dispersed and confused in their language, God remains Lord of all. The psalmist tells us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And in just a few chapters... He says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. and All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. The Lord of all brings redemption to the whole earth, to every tribe, tongue, and nation. This is what I want us to reflect on this morning. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And there's just two things that I want to focus in on. First, who do you think you are? <laughs> and then second, you are the Lord's. You are the Lord's. So first, who do you think you are? Uh, this, this genealogy that we have, it highlights um, names and places, some of which are familiar that we see throughout Scripture that crop up uh, again and again. Uh, we particularly note the, the places um, and some names, uh, but, but most of it is lost to us. I think to the to the ancient Israelites, there might have been um, some more, you know, understanding of the places and names. But we also have archaeological records of some of these places, some of these great cities, uh, and some of them are lost to us. Um, but one name stands out in the rest. Did you notice this? In the middle of this genealogy, there's this one person, Nimrod. Now, it's been a fun research into the name Nimrod. Nimrod um, is often used as sort of like saying, you're such a Nimrod, you're, you're a moron, right? And maybe I've not used that, but I know it's used that way. Um, it's sort of a, a cut on somebody for being a moron. Um, ironically, the, the reality of the text is he's anything but a moron, right? He's anything but that. He is a great and mighty warrior. There was proverbial sayings surrounding him. 
Um, he was somebody who built great cities. Uh, we see those cities here, cities like Babel and Nineveh and otherwise, Erech and Akkad and Kelna. Um, he was a son of Ham. Uh, so he was, in that sense, maybe not in that preferred line of Shem, uh, but he isn't a Canaanite, which is interesting. But he is kind of part of those nations that surround Israel, places like Babel and uh, later on um, uh, the Assyrian empires and different empires will sort of come from the roots of this great um, mighty hunter before the Lord. And that, that's another thing. He is a hunter. Uh, we aren't given any other detail, but he's a hunter before the Lord. Uh, he is, uh, the, and I'll just say that most of the commentators, if you go back over history, when they look at this person, Nimrod, um, they kind of gloss this issue of being a hunter before the Lord. Um, throughout Scripture, this language of before the Lord uh, is used to talk about uh, somebody who is dwelling in the presence of God. It's usually a sign of God's blessing. But almost all the commentators uh, see and view Nimrod as somebody who is, um, uh, is, is wicked, who is like, the, 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 like one of those that is saying, let me make a name for myself. And in the context, there seems to be some indication that maybe he was somebody who's making a name for himself. In fact, he has this proverbial saying surrounding him uh, that he obviously had a name that people remembered. And yet, what does it mean that he did this before the Lord? His name, in fact, Nimrod, uh, it's, it's a little bit uncertain, but could be derived from rebellious, the word Hebrew word for, rebe for to rebel. Uh, it's uncertain. So, at the end of the day, is he good? Is he bad? What does it mean? Um, I would say the text is uncertain. What is certain, as far as whether he was good or bad, his moral character, but what is certain, what we do know, is that he was a man of renown. He was a great man. And the whole of the text, culminating in the account of the Tower of Babel, seems to say generally, the peoples of the earth were becoming great. They were becoming great in number. They were gathering together and making great things. They were building civilizations. So that by the time of Babel, they say, let us build a tower for ourselves that reaches up into the heavens let us make a name for ourselves um, as we come to this picture of the tower um, there are lots of names in here by the way of peoples and we're not going to touch on all these names uh, i know we had great fun in our community group kind of delving into the names and tracing them out but i i want us to i want us to look at this this account of the tower of babel now I also want to point out a couple things to note about this account of the Tower of Babel. You'll notice that it follows the genealogy, but in terms of its placement in history, it probably fits somewhere at the beginning or middle of the genealogy genealogical record. So in that sense, it's, it's not following in a chronological order, but this, this section on the Tower of Babel might fit somewhere around the time of Nimrod. We don't know uh, exactly. But we do know that as the genealogy goes, the peoples are spreading out and they are, um, even in one, in one situation you have in under 
the, the line of Shem, you have this man Peleg, um, and, and it says, his name was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan, and there seems to be at that point a, a division or a spreading out. They aren't one. Uh, the name Peleg means to divide. And so this, this section on the Tower of Babel probably falls somewhere earlier, not, not, not uh, corresponding chronologically. And this is pretty typical of Hebrew. It often will make a parenthetical uh, statement at some point. But anyway, here, we, here it is, the Tower of Babel. We get everybody together. They're one. They think we can do this thing, and they're going to build a tower. Um, and what is this tower? Well, uh, it was likely a ziggurat. Um, and what was a ziggurat? Well, it was like a, it's like a tiered tower, like you have a tiered cake. Um, kind of like, kind of in a pyramid shape, but not smooth like the pyramids of Egypt, but rather tiered. And at the very top of the tier, there was often put on the top of the tier a, a temple, uh, where uh, what they hoped was, as they built this great tower, that they would reach up to the heavens and God would have a resting place with them. Right. So they were reaching up to to God and and showing how great they were. They were trying to build. Uh, their way up to him. Now, another thing to note is that this little notation about bricks. Why the building with these bricks and the bitumen? Why does it? Why does this, the text even describe that? Well, remember the initial audience. The initial audience is Israel. Um, they had spent 400 years in Egypt building bricks, making bricks. Why? For the purposes of making Pharaoh's name great. Right? They understood now what this story was about. I get it. Remember what Pharaoh said to Moses, Who is Yahweh? Who is he that I should obey him? He was Pharaoh. He built great works, and he did it on the backs of the slaves in Egypt. They and their parents and generations of their ancestors had given their lives why? So that Pharaoh and the Egyptians might make themselves like God. I don't know if you know something about the Egyptians, but another thing they would do is they would wear lots of gold. Not, not because they were vain per se. That was not the, it wasn't like, oh, that's pretty, though it might have been. But it was because that adornment of gold was a sign of divinity. And the more gold you had on you, the closer to the divine you were. They were seeking to be like God. And now the Israelites are hearing this story. This is a pattern that's been going on since the ancient time in Babel. You know, at the Tower of Babel, here it is. And I want to stop and think about the implications of this for us. I entitled this point, Who Do You Think You Are? Because I can only imagine God in this moment looking down at the people he made and all their ingenuity and all their creativity and, and trying to make that tower and build those bricks. And on the one hand, these people of God were reflecting God, were they not? They were taking these bricks and they were making stuff. They were being creative. They were, they were using the mind that God had made them. They were reflecting that image-bearing nature of God in the work that they were doing. Nimrod is a great man, renowned. You know, he was, he was a great man, and I think... There are, today, you can look out and you can see great men and women doing amazing things, right? There was, uh, 
uh, a famous architect, Frank Lloyd Wright. Many of you may have seen his works or you have seen him in books or whatever that is. Um, I don't know if you knew this, but he, he built one uh, tower, one skyscraper. I think it was like in Oklahoma somewhere, and it wasn't all that tall. But he had plans for another one in Chicago. He wanted to make a tower above all towers. It was going to be called the Illinois Tower. It was to be twice the height of the tallest building today, one mile high. And his goal is, of course, unreachable, but his desire was actually wanting to uh, reduce the footprint of the city. He wanted to put all the peoples of the city to work and to live in this tower going up to the heavens. He was a great architect, a great man in many ways. Um, not only individuals, but history is full of other great works, people coming together to build and create. I remember when we lived in Boston, uh, we lived there in the early 2000s, and uh, at that point, it was the sort of the tail end of the big dig. I think at that point, it was the largest public works project in the world, you know, building this tunnel through the city. And it was literally right out my office window. I would watch it being built. Um, great works. No matter how great or small our works are, when we do these things, when we create, we reflect God. We, we actually, even when children, when you guys go to school and you start to make something or to learn, or as you paint a picture, you're, you're reflecting God as the creator. Whether you paint or you plumb, you are reflecting God's creative acts. But the problem is not who we are. We are God's image bearers. Our problem is who we think we are, right? Not, not who we are. We, we are God's image bearers. This is what we're made to do, to go out and to, to make and create. But our goal, more often than not, is not to make God's name great by reflecting him, but to make our name great. To make a name for ourselves rather than, you know, even Nimrod had the, the title, Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. But I think I would change it to be like, Rob, a most gifted preacher. Maybe I would put before the Lord just to be a little bit humble. <laughs> It's so easy for us to do this, isn't it? To seek to make a name for ourselves. And our goal, our desire is to get to that place where we don't need God. And this is our world's fundamental problem. We, all, we have all the knowledge. Where's my, my cell phone there? All the knowledge of the whole earth right there. I mean, of course, not all of it, but vast majority of it. Doesn't that give us the illusion of omniscience? We can build towers to the sky the ancients couldn't even fathom. I mentioned the mile high, but we built them half a mile high. We can build bridges across great bays. We can fly to the moon. We can smash probes into asteroids. That's a thing now. We can plumb the depths of the ocean. We can predict forecasts down to the hour and the minute. But we sit there and watch. As the storm approaches, we can translate into any language at the touch of a button. 
Why do we need God? But God looks down and says, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? I want to read a passage from Isaiah. Familiar passage. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40. We often read this at Christmas time, right? Go up on high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. It's a beautiful passage, right? Where does it go from there? Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and in his arm, his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather his lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in the balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. Who are you? Our fundamental problem is that we have confused our image bearing of God with being God. Friends, you are not God. He doesn't belong to you. You belong to him. You belong to the Lord. This is my second point, final point. In this section of Genesis, we see both judgment and mercy. Both judgment and mercy. Uh, the first thing I want to note is, is to talk about is the, the judgment. It's, it's an in- interesting scene. I love the way... The Hebrew writers write. They write in such a way that brings us into the story um, that we can understand. God is there sitting on his throne, and he looks down, uh, and he comes down. It says he stoops down <laughs> to see what's going on. Um, you get this impression that the, 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 these Babylites are kind of putting this huge tower together, and they think it's this giant structure, and he's like, huh? What's that little thing down there? That's the picture that's being painted. He stoops down. He says this, The Lord looks down to see the city and the tower which the children of man have built. And the Lord says, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one, they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing they can propose to, will, to do will now be impossible for them. Um, I think you can read this and initially think that the language indicates God is worried. In the sense that, uh-oh, maybe if they get so much power, they'll actually use, just take over. That they'll be so strong that there's nothing that I can do to stop them. If I don't stop them now, it's like a, it's like a train. If you stop it early, it's good. But when it run, gets run away, there's, there's no stopping it. And I think you can read this text like that. That this is, the, the, the mankind is on this train. And that's not a terrible illustration, except, of course, uh, God can always intervene. But it's not a terrible illustration in that what he is concerned with is not that he doesn't have power over them or control over them, but what they are going to do to themselves in destroying themselves. 
It's only the beginning of what they will do. Notice how they're already starting to forget God. Notice this little line. Maybe, maybe you notice it or not. The, the, the people God say, or the people of Babel say, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they say, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top to the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Does that strike you? We've been looking at Genesis now for some weeks. And do you remember the cultural mandate? Go forth, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, go out. And now what they're saying is, we're not going out. We want to stay together. Here's strength. We're not going to follow God. We're going to do what we want. We want to make a name for ourselves. And if we go out, uh, it'll be too diffuse, too dispersed. And yet this was the very thing that God had called them to do. They were already forgetting God and forgetting his commandments. So what does God do? Well, he confuses their language. Uh, it's an interesting thing. Uh, he confuses their language. Uh, well, he undoes this, of course, in Pentecost, as I've already mentioned. But I want to I go back in your bulletins. We read earlier from... Uh, a passage of scripture that I think is apropos in this in this context, and that is uh, Psalm two in the scripture reading. You remember this psalm is a psalm of Christ's enthronement. It's actually a picture of God establishing His Son as the Judge of the whole earth. But at the beginning, He says. This, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the picture of what's going on in Babel. The people have come together. They're conspiring together to make a name for themselves and burst the bonds of God and his authority over them. And what is God's response in Psalm 2? He says, he who sits in heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Now that, that's sort of shocking, right? God's just kind of laughing. But he's looking on at the, the futility, the foolishness, the absurdity of man, kind, setting itself against the creator and ruler of the ends of the earth. And, and as I think about that for us, like how foolish we are. Well, I'm going to do what I want to do, God, and you can't stop me. Right? You ever say that in your, your frustration from not getting your way, not getting what you want? Well, I'm just going to go live my life, God, and see what you can do. Who are you? So God brings judgment. God reigns on high. His power is not like their power. It does not compare. He's the one that made them. They are his. You know, I think I've shared my Babel theory, so I'll share it one more time. Um, you know, I, I still find it astounding that we have all information at the touch of a fingertips. And one of the things that has struck me as that's become more and more embedded into our culture and our life, is how confused we've become. Right? 
We live in the age of Babel. We think we've made it. We've arrived. We have all knowledge. What, what do we need God for? We know all things. But when you look around at the world, have you tried to have conversations with your neighbors as you try to communicate with people about deep thoughts and deep things? And what you find is people saying, well, that's not my truth. Right? Well, my truth is X. There's so much babble. So much confusion, so much, so much noise that the world is lost, confused. This is God's judgment. This is what he did in Babel when he, when he confused their language and, and forcibly sent them out. He was judging them for their hubris and their pride. But there's more than just judgment in this text. There is mercy. Now, there are a bunch of parallels here to the pre-flood world, and I'm not going to go over all those parallels, um, but I do just want to note uh, a couple. Uh, first, you know, you have uh, the genealogies. Remember the genealogy from the line of Seth and the line of Cain, and here we have the genealogy now of, the, of Japheth, Ham, and Sham, Shem, and Ham, and we have those sort of parallels. We also have sort of this increase of wickedness. You notice that in, uh, of course, the pre-flood era, it culminates in the flood, right? God, they are wicked, doing evil only, always, continuously. And now here we get this picture of now we're Babel. We are at this place where there's pride and people are, are setting themselves up to be God and be like God. And so there's these two parallels that you might uh, note But there's also a difference, a profound difference. God does not flood the world again. He's faithful to his promise. More than that, he doesn't flood the world again, but in his mercy, he does not allow them to continue on the path that they're going, but he spreads them out. He confuses their language. That is God's mercy to them. He wants them to know, listen, you aren't God. You don't need to be God. That's taken care of. Let me be your shepherd. That picture of Isaiah 40. Let me be the one who carries you in my arms. And so in their confusion as they go out, they can be reminded that they are not God. I think uh, the challenge of building community across culture and ethnicity in our world is very hard, right? It's hard. It's a hard thing to do. We look at the world and it seems fraught. Tribe versus tribe. People versus people. Nation versus nation. And of course, we make, we always try to make ends, you know, we try to make ways to have relationship, but it seems always fraught. There always seems to be something that comes between the, the building of relationships and the bringing things together. And one of the things that I I think it reminds me of is that when God separates them into their nations and the languages and he divides them up, it creates a longing in them. Like, how do we communicate? How do we come together? How is it that we can be brought into relationship with one another again? And God says, this is where I can reveal myself to you. And so Shem gives birth to 
children, who gave birth to children, who gives birth to Terah, who gives birth to Abram. And Abraham comes along and God says, I'm going to choose you. Of all the nations, of all the peoples, in all the world, I'm going to choose you. But know this, Abraham. This is my mercy, not just to you, but to the whole earth. For through you, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to do it. You're not going to be the one to build your tower to the heavens. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through you. This is my mercy to you, that I will take that peace. And I will glorify you. But you will do it through me and not your own means. You know, as I think about the church, here, here, CCPC, God is at work in healing Babel. I look out across this group and I see people from many places. Um, I, I know in the past we did a sort of a list of people from various nations, from various ethnicities, from various backgrounds, and how God has brought, brings us together. And sometimes it's hard for us to communicate. It's hard for us to draw close to one another. And yet God is doing that work by His Spirit, working in us, that enables us to do the thing the world cannot do, to bring the nations together. To bring people from different places, different tribes, different families, and to come and to be worshipers of Him. And here's how He does it. Just as he stooped down to look at Babel and their mess, so the Lord Jesus humbled himself. As mankind was attempting to lift himself up by his pride and say, look at me, God, we're better than you. God said, look at me. Look at my son. Who has authority over the heavens. Who is the one who created all things. Who is the judge of all the earth. He comes and he humbles himself. And takes upon himself their sin and shame. So Philippians 2 says, because of that, he is highly exalted and glorified. But he humbles himself that we might enjoy the glory of the Lord Jesus. See, our glory is derivative. As soon as we try to grasp at our glory, it sifts away through our fingertips. As soon as we try to reach and lay hold of Christ, we receive the glory the one and only enjoy that beautiful kingdom made up of every tribe tongue and nation friends who are you you belong to the lord and if you're here this morning and you have yet to put your faith in him to trust in him you're still fighting against him you still want to set yourself up i just want to remind you you're not the lord he alone is king and he calls you to trust in him. There is a glory, but it's not your own. It's the glory of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray.